Hello and welcome to The Lee Show. As always, I'm Lee. It's nice to be here with you. Happy Sukkot. Hope you had a chance to shake a lulav and etrog. Uh, I certainly did. I've talked a bunch over the past year and a half about how stupid the entire profession of epidemiologist has proven itself to be. Like this was their time to shine and they just totally dropped the ball. And I think we should make a regular segment of the show called This is a Dumb Job. I would start with epidemiologists. We've covered that a lot. But I'd also include college administrators on that list. I I read a fascinating statistic recently that uh, over the last 40 years or so, the growth in college administrators has been six times the growth in students and professors. And Michael Tracy, I'm a big fan of his, he's done some great work over the past month on the COVID prevention measures at Connecticut College. It's a small liberal arts school. It's not on anyone's radar normally. But despite having mandatory vaccines, having close to 100% of the entire campus vaccinated, they're still doing this surveillance testing of everyone on campus each week. And as soon as someone has a positive COVID test, the whole campus goes into red alert, goes into lockdown. No one can do anything. And I got to ask, why? Everyone's vaccinated. The student body is 18 to 22. We know that there is no material risk for 18 to 22-year-olds. So why are we bothering with this testing? And I can come up with three possible reasons. I think it's probably a combination of those and some others. And if you have other ideas, you know, please message me and let me know. So reason number one, I think, is that there is a very lucrative industry of test makers and test givers, the doctors, the nurses, the equipment makers, And I think they're loath to give up this golden goose. I think they are making a lot of money off of it. And so they encourage this regular testing as best practices, as if somehow that means you have to do it. Reason number two is that as these universities and and as this whole university industry has just gone crazy with the hiring of administrators, you have all of these deans and and people whose jobs are just to do something. I don't know why they're given any responsibility for virology and infectious disease policy, but they're trying to do something. So it's just make work for them. And reason number three is insurance related. And I, I sort of wonder if that's one of the issues here, that once one school is doing this, and it's seen to to be the standard practice. I wonder if the schools can't get insurance and and liability insurance if they don't implement these policies. And so maybe they have to do it in order to get insurance. I don't know, but I, I query whether that's part of it as well. But what we've seen throughout the pandemic is that these epidemiologists, that's a made up job. They they don't know anything. It's just some dude with Excel who's giving you a handful of projections. And, and frankly, 
they're not any more reliable or useful than anyone with some basic training in data and statistics. And so when these college administrators are pretending to act at the direction of the expert epidemiologists and the public health people, it's just not that meaningful because the decisions end up coming down to the discretion of these random officials. And in no universe should they be making decisions about anything of importance. You know, Columbia University went into this very strict lockdown last week, and the restrictions were were uh, implemented by the Dean of Undergraduate Student Life. What is that? What is Dean of Undergraduate Student Life? That's nothing. That's That's like the epidemiologist of academic administration. When I was in college, that role was a person who oversaw disciplining the fraternities if they had parties that were too loud. And it was always some guy who just like didn't have a lot of friends when he was younger and loved having that authority and power as an adult. And this person at Columbia, Dean Kristen Scully Crum, has experience in, quote, residence life leadership and oversight. That sounds to me like just monitoring parties. And broadly, what bothers me so much about this is that it it's bestowing emergency powers in the hands of these busybodies. And this just isn't an emergency anymore. Everyone who wants this vaccine can get one. And frankly, everyone who's at risk of the vaccine can get one. This is endemic. It is no longer a pandemic. It is no longer an emergency. Enough with the testing people every week and the shutting things down. The only people who want to shut things down are these administrators looking for something to do and the teachers unions so they don't have to do their job and teach children. It's just dumb. You know, when I got engaged, we had an engagement party in East Hampton to celebrate. And on the night of the party, I went to a nightclub called Jet East with about 15 friends. And we got a table, we had bottle service. And none of it meant that much to me because I didn't drink, I don't drink. But it's still fun to be with my friends and go out and celebrate. And, you know, there's DJ and it's, it's a big party. And somewhere around 1 a.m., I feel my tummy start to rumble. And let, let, me, let me describe this nightclub, Jetties. There's, there's two big rooms. The front room, it's much larger with these high ceilings. Still not very large, but it's bigger. And then there's tables set up in like a square perimeter around the room with this sort of miniature dance floor in the middle. And the other room, the second room, was connected to that front room, similar size, but much lower ceilings. And if you stood on a table or a couch, your head would touch the ceiling. So there wasn't like great airflow. It, it felt a little cramped back there. And in the back of that back room was a huge bar. And adjacent to that was the men's room. And the men's room consisted of one stall and one urinal with a line of dudes just sort of looping around the bar. And there was this attendant slash security type guy who managed traffic in and out. And the attendant guy, he looked like, you remember the movie, The Green Mile? And there was the guy on death row who was played by Michael Clark Duncan. And it was, you know, that, that's, that was the attendant of the bathroom. This dude's like six foot five, very large. He's got the IQ of Lenny from Mice and Men. And so you've got, one stall, one urinal, and the stall, such as it was, had a divider wall that didn't go very high or very low. 
and there was no seat on the toilet bowl. It was clearly set up to discourage you from using the toilet bowl. So the entire bathroom, it's quite small, no door on it, opens right onto the bar, just just the Lenny fellow, and and he's standing there, and it's 1 a.m., and I start to feel my tummy, and the pressure is building, and I go and get in line for the bathroom. And as I'm standing there, it's starting to become more urgent, and I get to the front of the line. The urinal becomes free, but I got to let someone go ahead of me because I'm waiting for the stall. So I, I finally get into the stall. I take down my jeans. I squat over this toilet bowl with no seat on it, and I just unload. And it was extraordinary. And it stank. Like, holy moly, did it smell. It smelled like if I had eaten a skunk and then crapped it out. That's what it would smell like. And suddenly I hear Lenny, the attendant guy, start yelling, somebody taking a shit in the bar. Somebody taking a shit in the bar. And moments later, I feel this fine mist being sprayed all over the back of my neck and all over my shirt. And it smells. And I turn my head as much as I can. And I see this guy reaching his hand over the divider, spraying Lysol all over me. And I'm stuck. I can't go anywhere. I'm totally helpless. I cannot move. And I'm just getting sprayed with Lysol, with the the sort of like potpourri scented Lysol. And I'm I'm still I'm still going to the bathroom. There's nowhere for me to go. And this this guy, this attendant, is calling as much attention to this as possible, just yelling about it repeatedly. And there's no there's no bathroom door. So the aroma is just wafting into the bar area. I mean, everybody's getting a whiff of it. So I, I hurry as fast as I can. I can hear, you know, other people in the bathroom and outside talking about it and how bad it smells. And I, I do, you know. I clean up. Thank God there was toilet paper there and I get out of there as fast as I could. But I was, I was marked, you know, like in, in Iraq, after you vote, they dip your finger in ink. So you can't vote twice and you're, you're marked. That was me. I was marked by Lysol all over me. I've been following this Gabby Petito case. She's dead. It's very sad. I, I guess I'm, I'm moderately captivated by this story. Uh, I'm very excited for the first white guy who's going to tweet something like, oh man, it's a bummer when a hot girl is murdered. And then like the social justice warriors on social media are just going to tear his head off and he's going to get canceled. I I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this guy, Brian, did it, but I don't know. Maybe not. I don't, maybe we shouldn't jump to conclusions here. It would It would be fun if it turns out that there's another angle or, or several angles to this story. Like there was uh there was a story about how she was a, a neat freak and they got in a fight because he wore his muddy boots into her van and she wouldn't shut up about it. So maybe she was just like really annoying and a total ball buster. And she was pissed at him about the boots and she starts whacking him and hitting him and he just snaps and shoves her and she hits her head and dies. And then he just panics and buries the body. I mean, who hasn't been in that situation before. Or maybe he had like an ex-girlfriend who was really jealous and she came up with a plot to kill Gabby so that she could be with Brian. I, I don't know. It could be a lot of things. I hope that we get something good here. Like I hope that we get a, a, a Gabby Petito sex tape or a video of her just going full Karen and losing her mind on someone at a Chipotle or, or doing racist stuff and having a meltdown. I, I, I don't know. Uh, 
I, I, if, if he ends up getting found and he goes on trial, how amazing would it be if like he gets acquitted and then he just becomes besties with OJ Simpson or like OJ Simpson becomes his mentor and they're spotted having lunch together at the Ivy or something. I look, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I think this story is going to be captivating for a while and there's going to be just a, a, a steady drip of news here. And I, I, I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm strapped in. I'm ready for the ride. You know, there, there's, there's this backlash on Twitter. Like how come they're only covering her disappearance? Is it because she's white? How come they don't talk about the disappearance of black girls in the media? What's fascinating to me is that the people who are complaining are people in the media who themselves do not cover the disappearance of women of color. So if you feel so strongly about it, do something about it. So I think that's like a, this weird sort of hypocritical, you know, tangent to this. I've watched uh, some excellent TV shows in the past month. I really enjoyed White Lotus on HBO. Uh, I, maybe that's like a little basic. Is that basic to say that? Uh, I thought the acting was great, great character development, very funny, really sharp writing. Uh, I was impressed with that. I also watched Squid Game on Netflix, which was very good, especially if you're into any kind of violent or suspenseful kind of program. Uh, and, and you know, warning, it's it's very much both of those. Um, I, I happen to love Korean action movies. I, I kind of love like everything about Korea. I think it's an amazing place, but they they do a great job with action movies. And that's probably one of my favorite genres. Uh, I got into them back in 2001 when Netflix was still a DVD rental company. I read about this movie called Old Boy and I rented it and it was incredible. If you have not seen the original Old Boy. I know it was remade, but if you haven't seen the original Old Boy, I strongly recommend it. And from there, I just went down this rabbit hole. And Squid Game isn't quite that, but it's very good. And it's about the desperate lengths that people will go to when they are heavily indebted, when they are down on their luck. And look, as somebody who has dealt with the burden of debt for much of my life, I can relate to it. It's a crushing feeling. And I, I understand that you, you know, uh, when you're living with that burden, you can imagine doing very extreme things to escape the debt. I also saw Kate, this new movie with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I thought she was incredible in season two of Fargo. Uh, she was amazing in this movie too. By the way, Fargo, I mean, that's, Fargo is my favorite movie. The, the TV show I think is, is absolutely top notch. Uh, anyways, I, look, I love revenge movies. Kate was a great revenge movie. It's one of my other favorite genres. Old boy. I just mentioned old boy. That's a, a, an amazing revenge movie. Quentin Tarantino does these so well with, you know, Django Unchained, Kill Bill and Glorious Bastards. He's a real master of the genre. So, uh, strongly recommend Kate, uh, very cool, very good styling of the movie. Um, there, the whole movie there it talks about this like kind of soda that um that that she wants called boom boom lemon. Uh, I can't tell if that's a real thing. If not, it probably should be, but if you uh if you know and you can track down any boom boom lemon, please uh please let me know. 
I'm also reading my kids one of my favorite revenge stories, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Uh, you know, I read it like 10 years ago on vacation and it's such a great story. And my kids, they're 10 and seven and they're, it's, it's totally age appropriate for them. They love the story, strongly recommend it. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts, you love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published The Lee Show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio, I upload it, and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify, they'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players, and you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So I want to talk about something a little more serious that I spoke about last year and, and wrote about last year. It's back in the news. It's very important. And the topic is Nord Stream 2. Now, Nord Stream 2 is a pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany to carry natural gas. And that sounds like a dry topic. I believe it's one of the most important issues in geopolitics today. And it's also an incredible story of a false flag operation. So for background, we got to understand the German electricity market. Like if you rewind to the 1990s, Germany obtained a large portion of its electrical power from nuclear plants. And these nuclear plants were safe. They were effective. They didn't produce any carbon emissions. And a large group of vocal protesters that were supposedly from these green groups demanded that Germany shut down its nuclear plants because they were bad for the environment. And these protesters were part of a massive false flag operation backed by Russia. So they, they, were, they were rubes. They were useful idiots. They were there to protest without even realizing what they were protesting for, without even realizing that they were just, that their logic was totally flawed or that it was being backed by the enemy. And the chancellor of Germany at the time was this guy named Gerhard Schroeder. He hemmed, he hawed, he's debating what to do. And eventually he goes, oh, all right, I'll, I'll give in and, and we'll cave to the protesters and we'll shut down the nuclear plants. And at the same time, he signed a deal with Russia to build this massive pipeline called Nord Stream 2. And this pipeline would go underwater directly from Russia to Germany. Immediately after Gerhard Schroeder's term ended as chancellor, he became the chairman of the company building the pipeline. It is one of the most blatant examples of corruption I have ever imagined or seen. It's outrageous. This guy decided to do something terrible for his country, great for Russia, great for this company building a pipeline. And the day he steps down, from his job, he becomes chairman of the company building the pipeline. Like I, I, 
I think that in 10 years or 20 years, the historians will look back and they will write about Gerhard Schroeder as one of the worst people who fundamentally altered the course of world history with this decision. And the reason is, once Nord Stream 2 is turned on, once these nuclear plants are decommissioned, Germany becomes completely dependent on Russian gas. It gives up its energy independence and becomes dependent on Russia. Nord Stream 2 will neuter Germany's ability to stand up to Russia. Because imagine Russia misbehaves and Germany isn't happy about it. What can they do? If they protest too much, Russia turns off the gas. Germany has no electricity. And Germany is a really important member of NATO. So this effectively neuters NATO, the body that was built to stand up to Russia. It has hands an enormous amount of power to Vladimir Putin. The, Russia has executed this long con on the rest of the world, and they're on the cusp of getting away with it. And it's too bad, you know, in the 1970s and in the 80s, Germany saw that nuclear power had become France's signature accomplishment and had cemented France's role as a leading technology power. If anything, France overbuilt the sector relative to what its economy needed. But they were determined to have national energy independence and technological pride. And so they just kept building and it was a huge success. In Germany, they built a nuclear industry and there were protests in both countries, in France and in Germany. In 1977, protesters in France rioted in the town of Cray Malville against these nuclear plants. In 1979, they protested in Gorleben in Germany. And on both occasions, the protesters did some pretty extreme stuff. The authorities overreacted. There were casualties on both sides. But in Germany, there was this popular wave of support for the demonstrators, and they canceled the projects. In France, public opinion swung against the protesters. And the result was that there was a consolidation of power and, and popular support for the nuclear program. The French political system was much more centralized at the time. There was much more trust in technocracy. In Germany, you have this federal system that was much weaker. And there are many points where the, the protest movement can delay or weaken the plans. And, and so that's what they did in Germany for a while. You had these administrative courts that would intervene to slow down construction on behalf of the protesters. A lot of the judges had been leading members of these green groups when they were younger, and they were sympathetic to the cause. And the protesters realized that they could have a lot more of an impact doing this in the courts than doing it in the streets. So these administrative courts would just delay and increase costs. The Green Party in Germany made anti-nuclear their core issue. This, this issue has been ongoing for, for much of Germany's history. And I guess back then, nuclear was perceived as dirtier or more dangerous or somehow tied to proliferation. And so it was bad for the world. And we weren't as worried about climate change and global warming and emissions. So I guess that sort of made sense. 
back then. Also, Germany has this very strong anti-military strain. And so there's this association of nuclear power with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that can probably stir some feelings in the German people. When you had the oil shocks in the 1970s, it encouraged this broad environmental movement in Germany. And there was awareness of the negative effects of industrial growth that starts to spread amongst the public. I think for the, the 15 years from like 1970 to 1985, this anxiety about the environment started to evolve and broaden. And it was, it, it evolved from seeing pollution as these sort of in point things like, you know, here's a dirty plant that's belching a dirty thing into this increasingly global anxiety about threats to ecology and threats to the future of the planet. And I totally get it. That makes sense to me, right? We, we went to, from, from this, this broadening, we saw this broadening of, of the definition of environment and the nature of the anxiety about it began to change as well, right? Pollution went from being something that's just visible or audible or that you can smell, ol olfactable, is that a word? And its health effects, they were dramatic. They were directly perceptible. But in that next phase, I think both coal and nuclear power be came to be seen as the bads. And they they weren't equal. There, there There's a false equivalence between them. Natural gas was perceived as this virtuous fuel. It was cleaner than coal and safer than nuclear. That was how it was perceived. Solar wasn't a thing. Wind wasn't a real thing. Renewables. I mean, that was all just speculative at the time. It was, it was basically the edge of science fiction. And it was only in the 1990s that doubts began to emerge about natural gas and, and its contribution to CO2. But even then, I think it was still perceived as like a bridge to the future. So Germany is shutting down these nuclear plants. They don't need to. These plants could have their lifespan stretched by at least another 10 years, potentially even 20 or 30 years more. And that would give a lot more time to develop more solar, more wind. Maybe not so much solar. I don't know how sunny Germany is really. But instead, we've got this pipeline. And the pipeline... So, so let's talk about the pipeline itself. The, currently, Russia produces a huge amount of natural gas. And the natural gas that it sells to Germany goes through an existing pipeline that goes through Ukraine and Poland into Germany. And both Ukraine and Poland charge Russia a tax for using that pipeline. And they also get gas from that pipeline. Remember that Putin loathes both, both Poland and Ukraine. He invaded Ukraine in 2014. And so he hates having to pay a tax. And he also wants to fuck around a little bit more in Ukraine. He wants to invade. He wants to conquer Ukraine. He wants to deprive them of those transit fees, that tax for using that pipeline. So now you have a direct pipeline that goes underwater, Nord Stream 2, it goes underwater from Russia directly to Germany. That cuts out Ukraine and Poland. It allows Putin to make mischief. If he wants to invade Ukraine and shut off their electricity, he can do it. 
he can do it without having to worry that he's also turning off Germany at the same time. Also, this pipeline gives Russia infrastructure in the Baltic. And so that gives them even more justification for beefing up their military presence there. I'm sure that's a big worry for all the Baltic states, the Nordic states, and Poland. But most importantly, it's going to increase Europe's dependence on Russian energy. It's going to neuter Germany. It's going to completely neuter NATO. It makes one more thing our problem as America to deal with alone without being able to rely on our allies to help us deal with it. In short, I think this pipeline is going to make Ukraine, Poland, the Baltic states, all much less secure. It's going to undermine the European Union's energy strategy. It's going to give Russia a bigger stick for threatening Western Europe. And it's going to sow discord amongst all the NATO allies. And it's costing him $11 billion. That's all it costs for Vladimir Putin is $11 billion. That must seem like a bargain. What a deal to be able to make that kind of mischief for $11 billion. It's really incredible how he has perpetrated this whole thing, right? For over 20 years, you had these protesters who were protesting. They're all being funded by Russia. They didn't know it, but they're all being funded by Russia. You know how sometimes there's like an organization that's paid for by this and it's just named some like generic sounding charity. All of these protesters... They were professional protesters that were funded by Russia in order to undermine Germany's nuclear plants and get their boy Gerhard Schroeder to shut them down. There's been this open deal for German politicians for a long time. When you're in office, this is, this is every, everyone from the, the, the low levels to the senior levels. When you're in office, just don't do anything or say anything negative about Russia. And when you're done, when you retire from politics, you'll get a job as a consultant getting paid a million euros a year, like a sort of no-show job. And so as long as you dangle that out there, no politician in Germany is willing to do anything. They all see Gerhard Schroeder and they want to be him. As corrupt as that is, they want to be him. It has completely undermined the stability and power of Germany. It's quite brilliant for Putin to have pulled this off. With that, thanks very much for listening. I'm Lee Bressler. You can find me on Instagram, on Twitter. You can find my writing on Substack. Most importantly, sign up for a paid subscription. Show your support. You can do it on Anchor. You can do it on Substack. It's very easy. And I am eternally grateful for my subscribers. Thanks so much. And I'll be back with you soon. Mm -hmm.